Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, oh, Kansas City, it feels so good to be back here with you on Tapped In. I am Duncan Kaminsky. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I haven't talked to y'all since last Wednesday, and man, I am quite fond of y'all, Kansas City. I am so fond, and I am so happy to be back here talking some sports with you on Tapped In, brought to you by the Kansas City Public Network, best public network in Kansas City. We are here to bring the hot sports takes. I'm here to talk some Kansas City sports. We're live at Taps on Main, back at Taps on Main, where most of the construction is done in the back room. Still more to be still more to be done, but we are happy to be able to bring you this edition of Tapped In from the house of the best wings in Kansas City. A 40-tap pour-your-own-beer wall with another dozen beers behind the bar. Folks, come on down to Taps on Main. You can get all sorts of goodies down here. So get your asses down here during this rainy, foggy Monday. And apparently it's just going to be that way uh, pretty much the rest of the week. So, yeah, what better time to go get some beer and wings than when it's rainy outside? I mean, who wants to do anything outside this week? I know the... uh, the Royals haven't really seemed to want to do much outside lately either. So, and I, I kind of get it. How, on the bright side, 11-game losing streak came to an end, folks. Hot diggity damn. The Royals, after what seemed, after just it seemed it was unending. The never-ending story. The never-ending song. Whatever all that garbage is out there. That was the Royals. They were in the thick of it. The Royals were 16-20 and 20 after being 15-8. and eight with the best record in baseball entering at the end of April. And all of a sudden, yeah, going into Friday's doubleheader with the Chicago White Sox, those Chicago White Sox, as in the team with the best record in baseball going into Friday, were hosting the 11-game losing streak, Kansas City Royals. And, folks, holy crap, we ended the streak. Hot damn. Uh, the White Sox were 22-11 and 11 coming off of their own six-game winning streak going into Friday's doubleheader to make up for a game back in April that got rained out. Uh, but, yeah, the Royals were able to take the first game of 6-2 to two to finally snap that losing streak. And it was, it was just a very cathartic moment. It was, uh, I think, a lot of people, especially here on KCP, and I know the guys at Midwest Mike's were even remarking, is like, is this actually happening? Is this factual? I think that was the tweet that they sent out. Is this factual in regards to the 6-2 to two victory uh, from Friday afternoon? It was an eventful one, too. We saw in the second inning quite the nasty collision between Chicago White Sox first baseman and defending American League MVP Jose Abreu and our own third baseman Hunter Dozier. A wicked collision happened when neither neither man was really paying attention. Abreu's running down the first baseline to catch a pop-up. Dozier's got his head down, just kind of making his way to first base and just – not something you see in baseball all too often. A uh, real nasty collision that left both men laying down on the ground for uh, an extended period of time. Abreu came away from it with a facial bruise and laceration in addition to a bruised left knee. And Dozier came out of it. He didn't have anything like that, but it was enough, uh, enough of a concern that they did put him on the seven-day concussion list. Maybe it will do the Doge a little bit of good because, uh, yeah, folks, he's batting 139 and going coming into that that game on Friday, he was in the middle of a 31 consecutive at bat hitless streak. 
hit a home run the Wednesday before and decided, well, no, he didn't decide anything. If he decided anything, he'd be hitting home runs all the time. He just was in a very terrible run of bad luck. So maybe this, maybe uh, some time on the concussion, get the cobwebs cleared out. Maybe that'll help him get some other stuff cleared out as well. And we could see Hunter Dozier come back and be the guy, be the third baseman, be that force in the lineup that we've seen him capable of being before and earn that big contract he was given in the offseason. But the big story still comes away from it. We got the win. The streak ended. Salvador Perez had a three-run home run. Michael Taylor had a two-run home run, which was actually the first pitch from White Sox pitcher Lucas Giolito after the Abreu-Dozier collision. And we saw Brad Keller with a very strong start, slowly, steadily kind of starting to maybe get back to the Brad Keller of years past and the Brad Keller that we expected coming into the season. He went five innings, uh, five hits allowed, uh, seven strikeouts, three walks, and just two runs. And he's now lowered his ERA to 6.75. Not great by any means, but we're seeing it steadily drop down from, you know, being around like 10, then it dropped into the eights, and then in the sevens, now we're down to the sixes. And hopefully that is a trend that continues, and we can see Brad Keller be a staple of this rotation that we know him capable of being, and we, frankly, the Royals really need him to be. Um. <clears throat> So that was a, a good way to kick off the doubleheader on Friday. Unfortunately, the Royals were not able to carry that momentum into the second half of the doubleheader as they lost that second game 3-1. to one. Only run across the board was a home run by er, uh, Carlos Santana. Uh, it was very much a bullpen game. Jacob Junis did start, but he got roughed up early. He only went one in the third innings, gave up four hits and three runs, and uh, just was not uh, just was not good for Jacob Junis. Ever since they've taken him out of the rotation and put him back in the bullpen, it seems like he's, I don't know, maybe his head's just not in it or something. I mean, it's, it's kind of tough to say, but Junis has not looked the part. He, didn't, he looked dynamite early in the season in April, and it just has not been the case since then, which, again, has kind of been the story of the Royals in general in this 2021 season. So, uh, But then you go into uh, the Saturday game. Royals got another win. Who would have thought it would take going in and playing the hottest team in baseball for the Royals to not only end their losing streak, but to also not lose a series? I mean, we got swept by the worst team in baseball up in Detroit. Sorry, Ty. The worst team in baseball, I repeat, the Detroit Tigers, and they swept us in just terrible fashion. The Royals couldn't get anything done up in that series. And then you go and play the best team in baseball, and you take two out of four. Not bad. I know I just kind of blew the uh, what happened on Sunday, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but, yeah, Saturday they got a 5-1 victory to ensure that they at least were going to split the four-game series. Uh, another second day in a row, another three-run home run by a one Salvador Perez, quietly having a superb season behind the plate and at the plate for the Royals this year. Uh, he also had two doubles and two runs by Whit Merrifield. He was not two-hit Whit. He was two-run and two-double Whit. It doesn't rhyme, but it is facts, folks. It is facts. And the Royals were able to get four runs up on uh, the streaking hot Carlos Rodon for the uh, White Sox. They were able to put four runs on him through three. And unlike when they were able to get to Shane Bieber the week before, uh, when they were able to get to Bieber early and really take care of a guy who's pitching like an ace and you would hope they get the win. Unlike last time where the bullpen ended up falling apart, this time every, everything held through. 
and it's you didn't necessarily need the bullpen to come through big in this case because Mike Miner, once he got that early four-run lead, Mike Miner just cruised. Seven innings pitched, two hits, two walks, seven strikeouts. Miner picked up his first victory since April 23rd. He was assisted by some very something a little bit throwback for the Royals. They've had some defensive struggles, but another throwback for the Royals, Gerard Dyson made an absolutely fantastic diving catch in the seventh that helped preserve that. Uh, Miner did give up the one run. It was just a solo shot hit by uh, Jose Abreu. Uh, that, uh, or I'm sorry, it was, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, it was Jose Abreu in the fourth was the only run scored. And so the Royals were able to pick up that 5-1 victory, once again, to ensure that they would finish the, uh, <clears throat> finish the series at least even which ended up being the case as they unfortunately did take the L on Sunday, yesterday afternoon, three to four in one that is just, uh, it was a heartbreaker in all too familiar fashion. The Royals were up three to two going into the ninth. And Mike, uh, manager Mike Matheny made the decision to go with Wade Davis to try to pick up the save. And I will get to that in a moment. Uh, about Davis, but suffice to say, the old man just did not have it and ended up blowing his first save of the season after a Tim Anderson double. Yohan Moncada hit an RBI single to bring him in, making it a tying up the game at three. Jose Abreu got beamed, and then a Wade Davis knuckle curve hit catcher Cam Gallagher, who was filling in for Salvi. Salvi played DH yesterday, uh, but the knuckle curve hit Gallagher, rolled away. And Cam, he was able to get the ball, but he, when he tried to make the tag on Abreu, uh, a second-year umpire, Edwin Moscaso, called him safe. They went to the review up in New York, and the play was called, it was upheld. And that was the game winner, 4-3 to three for the White Sox. Mike, coach, or I'm sorry, manager Matheny and other Royals coaches were pretty steamed about it as the Royals continue to get jobbed by the managers. But that is... Uh, Kind of, I mentioned that I have a bone to pick with baseball last week, and that is something I will be bringing to you on Friday is my bone to pick. And part of the, the, the umpiring issues is a part of that. And as the Royals have been a pretty frequent victim of some very shoddy and questionable umpiring by the umpire crews throughout Major League Baseball this season. And that trend continued yesterday as Abreu, his leg didn't get across. Apparently, he reached back and touched the plate with his hand before Cam Gallagher was able to tag him. It was a very questionable play. He looked far less safe than on a, on the, during the game on Saturday when Kelvin Gutierrez slid in a home plate and looked much more safe in that instance and was called out, in which the out was confirmed and upheld by review, than in this case yesterday, in which it was a much more questionable call of whether or not he was safe, and yet re review still upheld it. We're starting to see, kind of like a couple years ago in the NFL, when the NFL officiating would be challenged on pass interference and very much an egotistical kind of, well, hey, we're going to call it, we called it the, the way we saw it on the field, just because you show us some reviews or some replay, we're not going to overturn it. Like, what we saw is what's right. You know, very bullish, egotistical moves by the NFL officiating crew a couple years ago. That's what we're seeing from empiring crews here this year, this this year, in particular, the incident that happened in the first week of the season between the Atlanta Braves and uh, Philadelphia Phillies, when the guy didn't even come close to touching the plate for the Phillies, and they called him safe and upheld it on review. And KCPN's Joe Hunk, I know he's talked about it, and I know I, I've mentioned it too. I think on social media, I've 
just absolutely bullshit call to be frank and it's something yeah we're again i that's, that's my it's a bone to pick that i have and and i'll get further into it on friday's edition of tap 10 so i will leave it there for the moment but the royals once again jobbed by the umpires regardless that's not the big issue the big issue that comes out of that game is wade davis wade davis is going to be put in the royals hall of fame someday wade davis will be forever remembered as getting the final out in the 2015 world series he is going to be an icon in royals history that was in 14 and 15 and 16 he is not the same pitcher anymore we have seen his ERA has trended up the last few years. Um, it's very unfortunate. It was a four, there's still a solid four, 13 ERA in 2018. Bloomed up to an 8.65 in 2019 and is, was a 20.77 in uh, 2020. And he currently has a 7.53 ERA. And yes, this was his first blown save, but... You also look back at that Shane Bieber game that I mentioned earlier in which the Royals were able to get to defending AL Cy Young winner Shane Bieber and the American League strikeout leader thus far this season got to him early and it was Wade Davis who gave up the eventual winning home run for Cleveland in the ninth inning and then we saw it again here yesterday when the Royals were right there to take a take three out of four from the hottest team in baseball and unfortunately Wade Davis was that he, he let the guys on base, and it was a wild pitch. And even the outs that he got, one of them was a fantastic throw from uh, Michael A. Taylor to the plate that – or I'm sorry, from Whit Merrifield to the plate that was able to get, uh, get one of the outs in which um, – uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in which your men uh, – I'm sorry, it was Yoan Moncada that tried to score, and Whit threw him out from right field, only Whit's second start in right field. And that was one of the outs, and then one of the other outs was, I, I believe, a fielder's choice. And so it just – or no, it was a sacrifice play. Um, but, sorry, I'm a little mixed up here because it's Wade Davis, and it makes me emotional because uh, you want to root for the guy, but it's clear as he's now into his late 30s, he's just not the same pitcher. And not only should he – you have to question Matheny's decision to have him go in in a save opportunity and what could have been a big season changing, really changed that momentum in, the, in which the Royals really seized back – their own destiny and we're able to keep pace just a couple games behind the White Sox in the AL Central and it, not only should Davis not be in those situations you're starting to wonder if Davis maybe it might be time to DFA him to designate him for assignment or just cut him all together I mean it's I hate to say it but again we're gonna see him and we're gonna it's there's gonna be celebrations down the line but Right now, there's just not much to celebrate when it comes to what Wade Davis is doing. I know it's nostalgic. I have spoken to the nostalgia on multiple occasions. I feel that swell of pride in my heart. But right now, there's better options in that bullpen. We do have a couple guys injured, Kyle Zimmer and Jesse Hahn set to come back. But when those guys come back, it, it's going to have to be a real hard look for, for, the, uh, the umpire, for the managing crew in Kansas City for the decision makers between Dayton Moore and uh, – manager Mike Matheny of whether or not Wade Davis's time in Kansas City is done so I spoke here a little bit lengthy on that uh, uh, so I'll cut that out because I mean again it's a bummer it's a bummer you hate to see stuff like that happen but it is the reality of sports these are icons age it's just what happens uh, but this does bring us now to the Royals are a quarter of the way through the season that yesterday was the 40th game 
So after 40 games, the Royals sit at 18 and 22. Not great, especially when you consider they were 15 and 8 at one point, but not terrible either. I mean, they were projected to probably win around, I've seen anywhere from 71 to 78, 79 games, and they're kind of right on a pace with that. And when you look at their Pythagorean win loss, uh, based on stats, how many wins and how many losses they should be, they were projected 17 and 23. So they're a game ahead of their projected win loss according to the Pythagorean theorem, or excuse me, the Py- I'm getting some algebra, the Pythagorean algorithm uh, that they put together for baseball. And at 18 and 22, the Royals have scored 164 runs and allowed 194. 30 more runs allowed than they've scored. And when they're only four games under 500, it's really not bad. The Royals are probably overachieving a little bit, and that has all been without Adalberto Mondesi in the lineup and also with pitchers like Mike Miner and Brad Keller struggling, which, again, both looked very good uh, over this, this past series. So hopefully some things to some, – some, some silver linings for sure after this quarter point of the season. Then some things to reevaluate. Uh, the bats, unfortunately, have not been up to par some bats have gotten really hot of late. Andrew Benintendi, as of about two weeks ago, would have been a major concern for the Royals. He's up to 283 now. And he that's actually the highest batting average on the team. You would have thought it would have been Witt, especially after that scorching hot start that Witt had to the season. But now we're looking at Benintendi as leading the team in batting average. Right behind him, literally right behind him at 282, is Just that dude who just keeps crushing it, Salvador Perez. And he also leads the team with nine home runs and leads the team with 27 RBIs. And we just saw, I mean, that's the benefit of when back-to-back days you hit three-run home runs. Salvi is, I said it, said he's doing it quietly, but 31 years old, Salvi is putting together one of the best offensive seasons we've seen from him and perhaps the best offensive season we've seen from him. And it's, it's amazing to think after there were some concerns with the injuries a couple years ago, and I know I've talked about this, and spent a lot of breath talking about this, but Salvi's worth it. Salvi's a special player, and we're witnessing what if you, you wonder, and I wonder for sure, if not for those couple of injury-plague seasons, if we would be talking about looking at a Hall of Fame resume that he's putting together. And we're seeing with how he, the silver slugger he won last year in the shortened season and him carrying that over to this year, maybe Salvi's going to have a, a strong second half of his career and something that actually does build up into a legitimate Hall of Fame resume, because I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, we're watching the best catcher in baseball. No offense to anybody else out there, Real, Mat- Real Muto or, or uh, Yachty Molina out in St. Louis, but Salvi's just doing it at a level that nobody else is, and we got we to gotta love it. We got to love it here in Kansas City. Uh, but a few other stats, uh, Carlos Santana, another pickup, 261, eight home runs, 26 RBIs, 34 walks accrued by... Carlos Santana, that is more than double the player that has the second most walks in the Royals. They brought in Santana for a reason, always has that real high OPS, and we are seeing it this year as he is a walk machine. And so he's definitely been worth uh, the Royals taking an investment in him at first base. And Witt, who I've mentioned uh, already a couple times, he's, he's starting to pick it up a little bit. He went through a real bad cold stretch. Uh, but he's starting to pick it back up a little bit. He's 261. Uh, he does have 24 RBIs at the quarter, mo- quarter mark of the season and 12 stolen bases. So Witt's on pace to, again, have a very another strong season. And you know that 261 batting average will eventually tick up for the guy who's batted over 300 over the course of his career. 
And then, as I mentioned, some of the pitchers. I mean, you've seen the struggles with Mike Miner, but he's brought his ERA down to 502. And Keller, obviously, has brought it down to 675. A couple of the strong pitchers, surprisingly, Danny Duffy, 4-3, and three, with still the 1.94 ERA. And Brady Singer brought his ERA back under 4 with uh, his start yesterday. And he's 1-3 and three with a 3.96 ERA. And out of the bullpen, some real strong arms. Josh Stamont, 2-4-1 ERA. Scott Barlow, a 2.57. Jake Brintz, 3.18. Irvin Santana, another callback, another throwback to the uh, 13, 14 days, uh, the glory days, as we'll call them. Uh, has a sparkling 2.35 ERA. And Greg Holland, obviously another guy who will probably end up in the Royals Hall of Fame, a 4.30. And so definitely some bright spots on this Royals team. And this is with uh, Adalberto Mondesi already on his rehab assignment at AA. So one can only hope that, hey, maybe he'll be back up here in a couple weeks and can be a spark to the lineup and the Royals can get hot again. So quarterway of the season, 18-22. and 22. Not great, about as anticipated, but we've seen what they're capable of with that 15-8 and eight start. Let's hope the Royals can get back to that because Kansas City could – it was fun. It was a lot of fun. May has been brutal, but let's hope they can finish May strong and really get into the summer and get hot again because got to love them boys in blue out there in summer kicking it. So go Royals. Uh, we're going to transition into a little bit more KC talk. The last time I was with you all and I spoke, uh, had an episode tapped in, it was when it was on the day when the NFL was releasing the schedule, and they'd only given us that little little morsel of the first round of the I'm sorry the, the first week, and there was leaks of some of the other uh, potential matchups, and those leaks that I mentioned on tapped in proved to be true, and so the full schedule was released later on that day, and the Chiefs ended up having the according to. Uh, team's records from the year before, the 11th most difficult schedule in the NFL this year. Not surprising for a team that just went to the Super Bowl. They have a first-place schedule, so they definitely have some tough opponents. But if you're a Chiefs fan and you know the how the Chiefs tend to operate over the course of a season, you know they play their best football in September. The Chiefs are exceptional under Andy Reid in September, and even more exceptional with Patrick Mahomes under center in September. And what you have to love as a Chiefs fan is the most brutal part of the schedule is that first half. Our first five games, we have th- probably the three top threats to the AFC crown. All three of them, the Chiefs will play within the first five games. Including, as I mentioned last, uh, last Wednesday, right off the bat, you get the Cleveland Browns. Maybe the top threat to the crown, either them or the Bills, I would say. Um, I, I still I still like the Chiefs in that. I mean, that's we beefed up the offensive line. Yeah, they got Miles Garrett. They went out and got Jadavion Clowney. Yeah, people were talking about how dynamic that defense is going to be. Yeah, that's 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 all nice and fun. That's that's cute, real cute, Cleveland. But. Uh, yeah, Patrick Mahomes is on a whole nother level. Again, as I mentioned last week, you got to face him. You got to face the Chiefs two thirds of a game without Patrick Mahomes. This offensive line ain't letting that happen again. And so that's uh, I, I. It'll probably be a tough game to open up the season, but I see the Chiefs getting that W. And then they go right back at another AFC North opponent the very next week on Sunday Night Football when they travel to Baltimore to play Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. So. 
two top teams, the two of the three top teams, the AFC crown right there. First two weeks, right off the bat. We've seen what the chiefs are capable of doing against the Ravens. This is the third year in a row. Now that we will face the Ravens in, in the first month of the season. Uh, I think both each of the last two seasons, I believe it was week three. This time it'll be week two. And we've seen what the chiefs have done to the Ravens in those two games, particularly last year when we went into Baltimore and I'm going to be completely frank. We went in there and kicked their ass. And I full well expect the Chiefs to do that again, especially with the improved offensive line. And especially with a team that we tried to run it back last year. Well, this year it's take it back. That's what Chris Jones has said. We are The motto is to take back the crown. Take it back. And so you've got a team with a chip on their shoulder. And so pretty much anybody in, their, in the path is going to suffer the wrath of – I don't have any more rhymes for that, so I'm just going to stop right there. But um, they – I, I, the Chiefs are going to be coming into Baltimore with a purpose and with a big chip on their shoulder. And I, I expect them to run through both of those top uh, AFC North opponents right off the bat. Come home, a noon game with the Chargers in week three. You just never know with the Chargers, but at Arrowhead, second home game of the season, going to be a full crowd most likely. Uh, yeah, Arrowhead, after a season in which you only had limited capacity at Arrowhead, and that place is going to be electric this fall. And I, for one, I just can't wait to see it. Uh, so, good. It's, again, tough sledding for the Chiefs right off the bat. They go to Philadelphia to play the Eagles in week four. One of the, I hesitate to call them a dumpster fire, but Philadelphia has got a lot of problems when it comes to staying healthy, when it comes to what the solution is quarterback. I like Jalen Hurts a lot, but he is still very unproven. What kind of playmakers does he have? Yes, they went out and got Devontae Smith. Still, I think, a brilliant trade-up to go and get a true, legit number one receiver. But until we actually see Philadelphia come out and play a game in week one, it's really tough to predict what they are going to be this season, and especially with a new coach. Nick Sirianni is unproven as well. So a lot of question marks up in Philly. That is week four. And Andy Reid's return to Philadelphia as well. Very interesting subplot in week four, how are the Eagles faithful going to treat Andy Reid? I mean, this remind this this kind of reminds me. Uh, it's it's different, but when Roy Williams left after spurning North Carolina once after Dean Smith retired, when they fired Matt, uh, oh man, I can't remember his name, uh, Matt Godfrey, I believe. Uh, but when they fired, oh no, no, Matt Doherty, Matt Doherty. When they fired Doherty and offered Roy this job for the second time, uh, KU fans were up in arms that he had left. When the reality is, Roy went and won a national champion, three national championships at North Carolina, and the coach that replaced him at Kansas, Bill Self, he went and won Kansas a national championship five years later after he'd taken the job. So this is a situa- that was a situation in which both, program- both the coach and the program benefited and were better off from having parted ways. That was a situation that was the same for Andy Reid and the Eagles. The Eagles won a Super Bowl in 2017. The Chiefs and Andy Reid got his first Super Bowl in 2019. So that's something where I'm very curious to see how the Philadelphia faithful will. They boo him. I mean, they booed Santa Claus, for God's sake. Are they going to booze Andy boo, – booze? Are they going to – yes, they will booze this Philadelphia. They're going to climb poles and they're going to booze like crazy. But will they boo Andy Reid? He kind of looks a little like Santa Claus if he grew out the beard. But – Will they show him the same hatred they did Santa Claus so many years ago? Week four, noon, we will find out.
And then you get into another, the, uh, the third of the three teams, the three top contenders to the top spot in the AFC that the Chiefs currently occupy. In week five, once again, the second Sunday night football matchup of the season, the Buffalo Bills come marching into Arrowhead Stadium. Excuse me, G-E-H-A field at Arrowhead Stadium. That's going to be something to get used to. It's Arrowhead, folks. It's Arrowhead. Just like we call Sandstone, Sandstone, no matter what the hell the name is, Arrowhead will always be Arrowhead. But the Bills come into Arrowhead Sunday Night Football Week 5. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Stephon Diggs, Tyreek Hill. Oh, it's going to be fun. That might be your AFC, AFC Championship matchup two years in a row. Like that, That's going to be a hell of a matchup right there. And again, both teams have very early opportunities to establish the hierarchy of the AFC. And who could – that's – it's week five, but you're already going to see a very early battling for positioning for who's going to get that one seed. Now it is once again only one one seed each conference. The, the the excuse me, only the number one seed gets the bye week in each conference. So it's going to be a hard, heavy, hot race for who is going to get that one seed, and that's a very early opportunities for the Chiefs. Once again, they play their best football early in the season, so I really like the odds of the Chiefs going out and having every opportunity to go out and stake their claim as once again being the favorites to win the AFC and represent in the Super Bowl. Uh, but a few on from there, week six, you're at Washington. They're playing a football team. They're playing the football team. Noon, uh, week seven at Tennessee, also a nooner. Then you come back for week eight. Monday night football, ladies and gentlemen, against the New York Giants. Daniel Jones, if he's still starting, comes to town. Yeah. Uh, and Saquon Barkley, if he's healthy, comes to town. And it's all, just all the Jalen Waddle, the uh, Tyreek Hill wannabe, comes to town. So, no, I'm, I'll, stop, I'll stop hating on the Giants. I actually like what they did down the stretch last year. As I've spoken at length on the Tailgate podcast, along with Aaron and Ty, um, but, yes, Giants on Monday Night Football in Week 8. Kind of an interesting matchup to have the Chiefs' only Monday Night Football game is against the Giants. I don't know quite what the schedule makers were thinking there. Not exactly the most intriguing matchup, but I guess they got to put the Giants on Monday Night sometime. And who better than against the defending AFC champions? So I suppose maybe that was the thinking there. And they continue their run with the NFC the very following week. Week 9, which should be the Monday Night Football matchup. But it's a 325 on a Sunday afternoon. Green Bay comes back down. Bar owners prepare for that pack of douchebags. But I'm sorry, Packer fans. Here in KC, you're cool. The Packer fans that travel down here, on the other hand, I didn't have the best time with. But that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. That'll be in October. And it will be there at Arrowhead. Or actually, I think it's November. But, um, but yes, the Packers will be coming to town in week nine. 325 Sunday afternoon at Arrowhead Stadium. They've already tried to advertise it as the finally in the fifth season in which they've both been, in, in, since Mahomes has been in the NFL, finally the first Rodgers-Mahomes matchup. But is it going to happen? Will Aaron Rodgers be wearing the green and gold? I know I've talked about it here. We've talked about it on the tailgate. We will continue to talk about it. I talked a lot of trash to my tailgate cohorts last week. Because I called this whole Aaron Rodgers situation, but I'm not. I'm not going to go down that route today, because again, it, the, that's the question: Will we finally see Rodgers Mahomes? 
Or might it happen four weeks later when the Chiefs have their first matchup with the Broncos? Or will it be somebody else? We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, week 10 at Oakland. Um, excuse me, at Las Vegas. Man, that's, that's another thing I'm still getting used to saying. At Las Vegas, the Chiefs' second appearance, first time with Raider fans in attendance at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. A, another Sunday night football matchup. Classic Raiders-Chiefs. We'll see what kind of state the Raiders are in. After taking a very questionable first-round pick on Alex Leatherwood, when there were some better quality offensive tackles on the board, but the Raiders went and got their guy. You got you to give John Cruden credit for that, man. He, you know, he liked his guy. He went out and got his guy, man. Uh, so then you get uh, week 13, I'm sorry, week uh, week 11. The Cowboys, two, man, that's that's going to be rough for bar owners. You're going to have two out of three weeks in which you get Packer fans and then Cowboy fans in town. Actually, in the week before that, Giants fans. Man, we are, Kansas City is going to be hosting some of the best of the best when it comes to fandom out there. It's going to be wild times in Kansas City at the bar districts around the hotels where these folks are going to be staying at including Taps on Main. So, yeah, that's something to look forward to in, no, in late October and early November. But the Cowboys come into town for a 325 game three or four days before Thanksgiving, week of week of Turkey Day. We're going to see some Cowboys out there at Arrowhead, and hopefully the Chiefs will show who the best team from Dallas is once and for all. I'm just kidding. The Cowboys have three Super Bowls. The Chiefs have two. Or Cowboys have five Super Bowls. Let's be honest. They've had more success, but... Right now, the Chiefs are the better franchise, and I look forward to seeing a Dak Prescott-Patrick Mahomes matchup. That will be – that people are talking about Aaron Rodgers and Mahomes. I look, very, I look forward very much to the first Dak Prescott and Patrick Mahomes matchup. Uh, then you have a bye week in week 12, week 13. You got the Broncos coming to town. Again, could it be Aaron Rodgers? Could it not? Who knows? Uh, and then you get uh, – it's three straight home games in November and into December. Uh, and so, yeah, week 13, Broncos in town at noon. Week 14, the Raiders are in town at noon. And then you get three straight divisional matchups. And then because the following week on Thursday night football, the Chiefs won Thursday night matchup, they go to Los Angeles to play Justin Herbert and the Chargers. And then you finish out the slate with uh, the Steelers. Who knows what kind of state the Steelers are going to be in. I full well ex- expect the Steelers to have the the collapse that happened at the be at the start, the end of last season, over the last month and a half, I full well expect that to be the trend moving forward into this year, because as much as I love Najee Harris out of Alabama, the running back they took in the first round, they didn't need running back, they needed protection, they needed somebody to block for the running back, and they needed somebody to keep Ben Roethlisberger upright and keep his old ass on the field, and they did not do that, so. I don't expect the Steelers to amount to much. I would not be shocked if in week 15, or I'm sorry, week 16, the Chiefs absolutely wax the Steelers, as that could be one of the last games to really make a claim for positioning in the uh, AFC hierarchy and for that number one seed and that first round bye week. Week 17 at Denver at a 325 game. Week 17, that should be it, right? That should be the end of the schedule wrong uh actually it is right at denver is actually week 18 i overlooked the Bengals, as i actually i think that's just kind of most people overlook the Bengals. so i'm just kind of you know i'm going along with the crowd here uh week 17 is is we are at cincinnati to play the Bengals. joe burrow and 
God rest or you know God help his knee because uh, they also didn't draft him any protection this year. They did draft Jackson Carmen out of uh, Clemson in the second round, but that's not exactly the left tackle that he was looking for. Although he did get his man Jamar Chase, so maybe Chase will be able to get open quick enough that you know the left tackle issue won't be so severe. But anyway, that's the Bengals at Cincinnati at noon, week seventeen, and then. Uh, we get back to at Denver week 18. Yes, folks, week 18, 17 games in 18 weeks this year. I'm still pissed off. They didn't give them a second bye week. They could definitely have done so. Just kicked the season, the season opener back from September 9th to September 2nd. But God forbid the NFL owners do something that makes sense. So in week 18, we get the 17th game of the season at Denver 325. What will the Chiefs record be? I'm thinking probably let's see, we were fourteen and two last year, should have been fifteen and one. Now that we're the sixteen game schedule is over, gonna have to get used to predicting things like nine and eight and shit like that. Uh I see the Chiefs probably like thirteen and four, maybe fourteen and three. If some things really go wonky, some injuries happen, twelve and five. Man, it is really weird throwing out numbers like that. That is gonna, definitely going to take some getting used to. But it's uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I feel like thirteen and four is probably safe. Fourteen and three would probably be able to seal up the one seed, and I think the Chiefs are capable of doing that. But it's a long season. At some point, the Chiefs will probably fall to somebody that's going to piss off a lot of fans here in Kansas City. The kingdom will be unsettled, but the Chiefs will then right the ship and you know make their march to the Super Bowl. But I do anticipate the Chiefs getting the one seed, so I'm going to say 14-3. and three. I will reevaluate later in the summer, once we're into the fall, right before the season starts. I guarantee we will do an NFL preview edition of the Tailgate podcast in which we will make our predictions. And so, But at this point in time, I'm saying 14-3. and three. I think the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl again, so I might as well just buy in and say 14-3. and three. Um, But, that's, yeah, high expectations for the Chiefs. Uh, that's that was the big news this last week for the Chiefs. Again, the 11th most difficult schedule, and the Chiefs. I mean, they've had an active week. You know, they went. Uh, there's there's rumors of uh, them going after D.D. Westbrook. A lot of the players are seemingly going through those back channels on social media and reaching out to former Jaguar first round pick D.D. Westbrook, the wide receiver out of Oklahoma, to help strengthen the wide receiver core. Chiefs made a very quiet trade for another former first round pick, along with Minnesota. For uh, 2018 first-round pick cornerback Mike Hughes, he's dealt with injuries his first couple of years. It's not like he's just been a dud. It's just he's been injury-prone, so Minnesota gave up on him. For the whopping price of the Chiefs trading a 2022 sixth-rounder for a 2022 seventh-rounder in addition to Hughes. I would say that's a pretty good investment that continues on with the trend of Brett, general manager Brett Veach loving to go after former first-round picks on the cheap considering that now uh, Hughes is the second former first-round quarterback the Chiefs have been able to acquire very cheaply in addition to last year late in the season when they got DeAndre Baker, the former 2019 first-round pick cornerback by the New York Giants. So t- young talent, Chiefs seeing maybe Ward walks next offseason. Maybe they don't bring Bashad Breeland back. So some uh, interesting things there. And I'm going to finish off by saying a um, really cool thing that the Chiefs did. Uh, I think the thing that stands out the most to me is they did right by one of their own, a guy who will be in the ring of honor someday, and he might end up in the Hall of Fame at some point. But uh, 2006 first-round pick out of Penn State, 
Tamba Holly. Chiefs signed him to a one-day contract so he could retire as a Kansas City Chief. The man came back and he talked to he, he talked to folks and they put out the picture of him signing that one-day deal so he could retire. And then he had his kid there with him. And man, that's uh we talk about how messed up a lot of these organizations are and a lot of people that run the shows in different organizations. I mean, we see things going on in Houston and we see stuff going on in Washington, but and and in Las Vegas, and I've made mention of it here in the kingdom, we've got to be very, very proud of the members in the front office that we have because they they make their mistakes, but man, more often than not, they do right by their people and they go out and try to do the right thing, period. And bringing back Tom Bahali to let him retire as a chief and really honor him in a moment like that was absolutely the right thing to do. And I look forward to that day when when we see uh, Big Tom Bahali go up there on that Ring of Honor in Arrowhead Stadium. So that's going to finish out this Monday edition of Tapped In. Once again, thank you for joining me, Duncan Kaminsky, here on Tapped In from Taps on Main. Brought to you by the Kansas City Public Network. You can find me at Duncanstein on Twitter. Uh, I know that's a weird name, but yeah, it's, it's we'll link it on the show. So you'll be able to find me there. And once again, thank you for tuning in, and I will talk to you all on Friday.